Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. It's great to be in worship with you. And if you're visiting with us to to this morning, I'd love to meet you if I have a chance to after the service. And uh, as a way of introduction, we're in the middle of a seven-week sermon series on Ecclesiastes. And this morning, we're looking at working your way up. Ecclesiastes is uh, almost an extended meditation on toil, this idea of working and producing. And this morning, we're going to look at just a few short verses here in chapter four. But before we get started, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would have your way with us through this passage. Have your way to us. Let us find grace for our daily lives. Some of us are overworked. Some of us are underworked. Some of us are workaholics. Some of us avoid it altogether. I pray, I ask for these dear people that are gathered here that you would speak your love over us in a way that changes how we work, that changes what we work for that we would learn to work not just to provide for daily necessities, but in such a way as to bring healing and provisions for others, to see our work as a way of responding to the grace that you have granted us in your Son, Jesus. Would you lead us? Would you be with us? Would you help us to see that which you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, though it seems like it never ends. The, the race for the presidency is about to kick into high gear. And the candidates are all on the campaign trail. They're raising money. They're trying to get their party's attention and vying for the nomination. And one of the big topics that everyone is talking about is income inequality. And it's, of course, a very real problem, and it's good that it's being addressed. And Kohelet, our teacher or our professor that is teaching us here in chapter 4, uh, helps us to see that inequality is not just a modern problem. It's not something that just began in this campaign cycle. The workplace has far often than not been a place of inequality and of also injustice and great competition and envy just as it is today. And if you follow the Democrats on the campaign trail, perhaps they would lead with their explanation and their proposed solution. They would lead in their rhetoric that there needs to be more fairness in the workplace. There needs to be more equal opportunity for everyone, a more equitable playing field. And yes, who wouldn't agree with that, at least in principle? 
Many are experiencing the very thing that Kohelet is talking about, a certain chasing after the wind that they experience in the job market and in their workplace, and that many of our friends and neighbors feel with regard to work that no matter how hard they work, how smart they are, they won't leave anything more to their children than they themselves inherited. And if you go down to the Portland Rescue Mission and serve with us on Thursday night, you'll have time to talk with some of the people that are dealing with workplace difficulties. And many of these people that get their meals at the rescue mission are very intelligent. They're hard workers, and yet they can't find adequate employment to put food on their own own table. And conversely, we see that there are some people, we see examples every day of someone who seems to trip and fall right into a big pile of money. Verse 4-6 says, there are those who work with two handfuls of toil. And this expression means that their hands are both filled with toil. Their hands are always to the plow. They're always working. And yet their toil, Kohelet says, is chasing after the wind. They're no better off than when they began. There's nothing to show for their labors. Now, if you follow the Republicans on the campaign trail, maybe they would talk about it in a little bit different way, that they would say there's no intervention, government or otherwise, that can guarantee a true meritocracy, that there's no system that will create absolute fair representation of everyone's value in the workplace, that there's something broken, that there's something fallen about our economic system and the workplace itself, that the inner city school teacher is never going to get paid as much as the NFL commissioner who made $44 million last year doing a terrible job. We can't balance that out in the system as it is. No one can control, no system can control all of the accidents, the chances, the impenetrables, the unintended consequences that determine success and prosperity. Now, whichever one of these insights appeals to you more readily, we can say with Kohelet that there's no degree of toil that is a guarantee of prosperity because we're all working in a system that's less than fair, less than equal, often unpredictable, full of frustration, and maybe more importantly, is never, never able to satisfy the soul. We toil in a system that's in fact cursed, according to the Bible. In many ways, Ecclesiastes is meditating on the effects of the curse of work in Genesis chapter 3. To Adam, he, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Or in the words of Mr. Incredible, no matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. Sometimes I just want it to stay saved. You know, for a little bit, I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for 10 minutes? That's his meditation on Genesis 3. It always goes back to chaos. The world doesn't say stayed. The house doesn't say stay picked up. We toil in a system that feels often like Sisyphus, cursed to constantly roll the rock up the hill, only to see it roll right back down. And yet, what does Kohelet see in this system? He says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one's envy 
of others, one person's envy of another. And of course, that's a, a generalization. But in a system like ours, what is there to envy? Are we envying rolling the rock up the hill faster? Are we envying someone who gets paid more, who's compensated more to roll the rock up the hill? We would only be competitive and jealous in the system if we believe that our work is far more than just that which allows us to eat and have a roof over our heads. If we only are looking at work, our possessions, our achievements, to provide just basic necessities, we wouldn't have near the amount of envy and jealousy. But if we're looking for it to provide something much deeper, if we see our work, if we see our achievement, if we see the possessions that we're able to buy through our work as a way of answering our heart's quest, then absolutely envy, competition, jealousy. Thomas DeLong is a professor at Harvard Business School, and he tells about a former student who landed a terrific job at a Fortune 500 company. At least it seemed like a terrific job until she received her alumni newsletter in the mail, and she read about a fellow student who she'd been in class with in the MBA program who had just been named a vice president at a Fortune 100 company. And from that moment on, she could barely hold a conversation without bemoaning her lack of VP and Fortune 100 status. And on more than one occasion, she told others that she felt, felt like an absolute failure. He goes on to say that more than ever before, professionals are obsessed with comparing their own achievements against those of others. And over the last five years, he's inter interviewed over 500 people, asking them questions about what drives their envy, what develops this jealousy, what makes them compete. And 400 out of 500 people questioned their own success and brought up the name of at least one other peer who they felt had been more successful than they were. Many of these individuals are considered among the best and the brightest. They have incredibly lucrative and often prestigious jobs, and yet they're trapped in this cycle of competition and envy and jealousy. When we're looking at our work to prop up our identity, when we're looking at our career as a generator of meaning, then of course we're going to be jealous and competitive and envious of other people who succeed us. Other people are seen then as threats to something that's far more important than just our next paycheck. We're looking to work as a way of rising above this vaporous, meaningless world that we inhabit. And it doesn't just create a competitive workplace, but it creates a, a dislocated, forever questing heart. Those at the bottom think, well, if I just had this, fill in the blank, I would be happy. And those at the top who's, who filled in all of those blanks, they still want more. Both are stuck in this cycle of wanting more from work than it can possibly give. There are Fortune 100 VPs who are looking to work for salvation and unemployed people who are looking to work for the very same thing. So is there a way through? Is it possible that whether we're working in a high-up position in a Fortune 100 company or taking out the garbage in a very low-paying job, that we can work in a way that provides for our physical needs and maybe some vocational fulfillment without looking to our work as a meaning maker. Well, Kohelet gives us two contrasting approaches here. One, he says that fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. We had a family friend growing up, my parents' age, and he had a family, 
and he became a salesman, and I can't remember what he was selling, but he reasoned that if God wanted him to build his business, wanted him to be successful, then God would bring him clients. And there's something honest about that. There's something very biblical. There's this healthy dependence upon God's provision, that, he's not, that this person is not in control of life. But do you know what he did? He sat in his home office praying and waiting for clients to show up. He never went to the office He never went and knocked on doors. He never sent out mailers. He never did anything to acquire business and clients. And guess what? Nobody knocked on his door. He sat praying and praying and waiting and waiting until they had no money to pay the bills and they lost their house and and eventually lost his family. There are a number of ways of folding hands, which in Kohelet's imagery means being either fed up with the inequities and the injustices in the system where you just drop out. You say, I can't succeed. I can't make it. The system is unfair, and I've had it up to here, and I'm dropping out. You can fold your hands in that way. Or, as our family friend did, you don't respect the fact that work is, in fact, cursed and that God doesn't show up and do parlor tricks so that you can get what you want. Kohelet is giving us actually some very simple advice, though profound. One is don't look to work for salvation, for transcendence, but at the same time, work hard enough because you have to live in this world and not a perfect world, and you got to eat. In Ecclesiastes 9, what we'll look at later on, he says, For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. In other words, don't overthink it. Whatever you're going to do, do it well. And before that, he says in verse 7, Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. This could be stated more strongly. That kind of tones down the intensity here, that your work is already approved. What it's actually saying, and what he says in chapter 2, is that God takes pleasure in what you do. Whether you're an attorney a groundskeeper, a teacher, a stay-at-home parent. Simply do your job with integrity. Do your job well. And God is pleased with you. But there's an opposite extreme. From the folding of the hands, from the giving up, from being lazy, from not working hard enough, there's the opposite extreme. Perhaps one that we're more familiar with in verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. This person is working so hard so that they can have it all, that they have both hands full of toil. There's nothing left to take hold of life with. Work is your idol, your salvation, and as such, it will never satisfy. Some fold their hands and give up, Some try harder and they keep grabbing and they don't have enough room and margins in their life because their their life, their hands are full of toil. And you're squeezing harder and harder to extract meaning from work only to find diminishing returns. There's two contrasting approaches, two false starts, but is there something else that Kohelet gives us that could provide a way through? Well, he hints at it. And like we've done in other parts of the book and other sermons, we have to position Ecclesiastes in the larger biblical narrative because it was never meant to be read and understood solely in isolation. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls 
with toil and chasing after the wind. A handful of quietness is what he's saying. A handful of quietness. Isn't that a beautiful image? Modest demands and inward peace. Far from the fool's rejection of work. And also, far from the person who surrendered to the craving and endless pursuit of work as a meaning maker. This person has quietness in their hands. Quietness describes the one who understands that work is a necessity, but not an ultimate meaning maker. But you see, to do that is you, you have to know the ultimate meaning maker himself. And you don't get to him by the sweat of your brow, but he gets to you by the sweat of his brow. It's Jesus' work. It's his toil. It's his labor that sets you free from work as a means of salvation. In His work, you don't get two handfuls of toil, but you get two handfuls of rest. Eternal rest. And it's that rest, that quietness of soul that you need and that you can then rub into your work, that you can cultivate in the things that you do when your soul is quiet and not agitating for approval from your peers not agitating for recognition because you're empty inside and you're trying to throw everything you can into it to fill this bottomless pit. Instead, Jesus gets to you and He gives you two handfuls of rest and quietness of soul. And then you can begin to rub that into your work. You can begin to cultivate that. You can work knowing that whether your work is recognized or whether it's overlooked, that you have His pleasure, that you have His approval. And that He approves not only of what you do, but He approves of you. He approves of you as a person. He, in fact, delights in you. Friends, take that to work with you tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would give us quietness of soul. That we would be able to rest from our labors, if not physically. That we can't stop working that we can stop working to find something that it will never give us. Lord, I pray that You would still our hearts from that ceaseless striving to find meaning, to find recognition, to find acclaim. Some of us get it, and that's good, and we shouldn't reject it, but Lord, help us to not seek it so that we can prop up our own, our own identity, our own selves, but let us find ourselves in You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.